Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Jordan Rothline, and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. Our guest this week is Morton Sabotnik. Practically everyone knows his classic Silver Apples of the Moon, the first label commissioned piece of electronic music, and a record that approached synthesizers not as replacements for more traditional instruments, but as tools for making previously impossible sounds. With a career stretching more than half a century, Mort has lots of stories to tell. And when we met in New York recently, I was keen to just let him talk. We recorded this in the living room of his Manhattan apartment, so just as a heads up, you'll hear a fair amount of city noise in the background here. Not sure it matters. You can find our full archive of exchanges on residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at RA-Exchange. An exchange with Morton Sabotnik, up next. Your first instrument, if I'm correct, was the clarinet. Yes. And by all accounts, you were very, very good at it. Yeah. You know, if you're interested, I I will have it posted on my website probably by the time I get back from Japan. But I just found on other minds, you know, that the website, it's, um, it's a group in San Francisco that does new music. They do concerts and things. Anyway... I was doing some research for my book, and I found they have a recording that I had made in 1981 at a concert with doing the Beethoven Trio for clarinet, cello, and uh, piano. And I had I had at that point stopped playing. I stopped playing in 1966, but this was a special event. It was the anniversary of the first chamber music concert done on their chamber music series in San Francisco and uh, and I happened to have played on it so they invited me to do it and I listened to it and it was really good <laughs> so I have actually have that that recording now to show people this is what it really sounded like yeah that's my that was my instrument yeah and you you started at quite a young age and the story is that right after high school you left and joined an orchestra um, not quite I think I have said that in interviews, but now that I'm writing my book, I actually have the actual situation. I actually ended up at the University of Southern California for one year, or one semester, I think it was, because I graduated from high school in January and went to college in February. And then it was that end of that first semester. I must have been there for one semester. I think, I'm not really sure, but I was at USC and then auditioned for the Denver Symphony and went off and played there. I was, I was about 18 years old. Mm-hmm. It sounds like, though, you were always a bit reluctant about it. You liked playing, but your musical interests were maybe elsewhere? Yeah, I, I started the clarinet because I had bronchial problems when I was very, very little. 
and the doctor recommended a wind instrument. So that's how I got started. And um, and it was extremely easy for me. I mean, within literally within two years, I was able to play almost anything written for the clarinet at that point. And um, <laughs> at one point, I see, I must have been about seven years old when I started. And by the time I was nine, is a joke or a, I don't know what it was actually, but I, I was able to play the Flight of the Bumblebee all staccato. So, you know, that kind of stuff. Anyway, they, they wanted me to go into the Major Bose Amateur Hour. There was this whole thing. And I, that was my first instance of what the world was like out there. And I, I thought, I don't want to do that. What am I going to do that for? So I played. It was very easy for me. And of course, I, I excelled at it. So I was able, I was actually playing semi-professionally by the time I was uh, in high school and uh, on television, <laughs> you know, in, in pickup bands and things like that. And, uh, and doing some concertos as a young man with um, local orchestras and things like that. So it was easy for me, and it was um, sort of a guaranteed living. But what I really got involved in by, I guess it was about, not really sure, I think, certainly by high school, but I think it was actually earlier I got involved in, um, in actually deciding I wanted to compose music. And so I, I basically was self-taught. I got a, someone gave me a whole library of music theory from orchestration, harmony, counterpoint, but it, it, it was old. It was really 19th century teaching. So I was doing species counterpoint and all the, all the really basic stuff that had been around for a long time and went through the whole thing and was self-trained and then began to compose. I mean, I was actually starting to compose during that period. So it was that that I really decided I wanted to do. How would you describe the style of some of those early compositions? Early compositions? Well, in high school, I don't really, I don't really remember specifically. It was in, until I got to high school that, that I know what I did, because I was, always, I was learning. And also, my work ethic has always been, from the time I was very little, through now, is, is very extreme. So I would get up like at five, six o'clock in the morning when I was going to school, you know, public school, and do counterpoint. And some of that would be writing music. It was just my period of the day. I, did, I wasn't for anything. I was just, and then I would go to school and sleep most of the day and then get home <laughs> and practice the clarinet for four hours when I got home. And that was an absolute regimen. And um, so I don't remember exactly what I wrote, but when I got into high school, was a very also my parents moved all the time so we were I was in four grammar schools K through six and two junior high schools and two high schools because we were always moving so I had very very few friends by the time you'd make a friend by the time I got to high school I didn't even bother anymore I mean it just didn't make any sense so I just did this thing that was music was my what was the thing that I did and um at a certain point, I, when I got into the second high school, which would have been, and it was always a year and a half, so I was always in the middle. I couldn't even start at the beginning of, the, of a academic year. So 
I don't know why that worked out that way, but I ended up at a place, North Hollywood High School in Los Angeles. There, there was a, a music teacher, I hated school. I just, I mean, I felt like I was in jail <laughs> and I had a jail term that would last until, you know, I got out of high school. And um, at this school, I was well known actually as a kid uh, in the Los Angeles area. I was playing in major orchestras for kids and things like that. So the music teachers all knew me when I got into the high school and the orchestra teacher said, look, he said, um, we don't have an orchestra good enough for you, but I said, what we'll do for you is that you can play every instrument in the orchestra. Just we'll hand you an instrument, and you can just play. You'll get to feel how it feels to play that instrument. So that that's what I did for a year and a half. I learned my orchestration, just you know, trying to play the violin and trying to play the viola, and uh, not being able to get a sound out of a trumpet, but but sort of being there and you know, knowing the literature and so forth. It was great. And um, were you as good at any of those instruments oh from no, the office? I, I you... could play the clarinet and the saxophone and the flute very well, but the other instruments I would I, I never even practiced them. I would, the idea was to sit in the orchestra and get a feel because you you hear everything when you're there and and you know the parts and you you know I could wiggle my fingers okay, but I I couldn't make sounds that were worth anything. But it it was very useful. Then I discovered there was this. Teacher, and I guess the the orchestra teacher told me about him, the conductor, and he was a graduate. He had studied in Paris. Joel Harry was his name. I think he died now, but he taught music appreciation and other things. But he also gave a course in harmony, and of course I had studied on my own. But I decided I'd rather do that than something else. So I went to him and and. Um, he gave me a placement test, and he said, so how much do you know? And I, and I showed him what I told him what I did. He said, well, I'm not going to even get close to that in this class. He said, are you interested in composing? And I said, yeah, that's what I really want to do. So he took me under his wing. I took the course, but what he gave me was, this was 1950, and um, he gave me the Ernst Krennic book on 12-tone music. And there were actually exercises. So I did 12-tone music while the rest of the class was doing, you know, one, four, five, one. And um, then the Monday evening concerts, which had Schoenberg, Stravinsky, you know, it, it was a great series of wonderful musicians and composers at that time. He would just take me to all the Monday evening concerts and introduce me to the music of, um, lots of music. But one, one was, he had a copy of, Charles Ives' Concord Sonata. There were no recordings yet, I don't think. And in any case, I didn't hear a recording. But I did have the score, and I just loved it. I just thought this was great. And he said, well, I forgot who was writing it now, but someone was writing a biography, famous composer, but I can't remember now. But in any case, I, um, I got a little correspondence going about Charles Ives and got this thing going. And I, at that point, I started writing music very much influenced by Charles Ives, but the Concords are not, it's the only piece I knew that, that I had. And for my graduation, I wrote this sort of cantata with a bunch of instruments and singers and everything uh, with in two different keys and polytonal, polyrhythmic and all kinds of stuff. It was, the teachers all liked it, but I don't think the kids liked it very much. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, well, it sounds like from very, very early on, you had an appreciation for more challenging music, music that kind of got outside of quote-unquote traditional yeah, but sounds. The, that's why I say I, I don't know what it was before that period, before for that two-year period and a year and a half in high school. That year and a half, the Bartok Quartets had just been recorded by the Juilliard Quartet. And I, I remember falling absolutely in love with the fourth and fifth, I think it was the fourth and fifth, I think that's the fourth quartet, I can't remember now. But I just absolutely, I thought, it sounded like noise to me because they were all the close things. And I, I didn't hear any tunes, I didn't hear anything, I just noise. And I thought, whoa, this is great, a grown-up person is writing noise. And I listened to it so much that eventually I heard all the tunes and everything. It was a little disappointment when that all came in. And then, then the Schoenberg Serenade, or early serenade, was recorded. There was very little music, 20th century music recorded, and no scores to get your hands on. So um, those two works, the, the two quartets of Bartok and then the Schoenberg became, I mean, I eventually started to read, learn to read scores by, um, started with, Mozart and Haydn string quartets and then orchestra where I could memorize the sound of it and then read it and hear it in my head and I eventually got that to the Bartok and to the Schoenberg as well so um, that's really what I was interested in. You also have always had a big interest in technology and I mean would that be fair to say? No, no I, I didn't not until 1959, 60. Mm. But I didn't. I had no technology interest. I didn't know anything about technology. Wasn't much around, I guess. But um, it, it wasn't until 1959 that it occurred to me to to start looking at technology, and that that was for a different reason. That was not for the technology itself, but that was because. Let me backtrack for a minute. There was a moment I discovered during that same period, that high school period. When my mother died, a box came, got sent from whatever, I don't remember who sent it, but it had my name on the box, and it was something that she had kept from the time I was in kindergarten and, you know, things from school. And in it, toward the top, was an essay I wrote. I didn't even know I did any work in high school, but there was an essay I wrote or a short story or something, probably the period that... um, I was working with Joel Harry, and um, there was a science fiction story in the future, and somehow I was in first person, so somehow I was coming into a concert of late Beethoven Quartet, and I came in and I was very surprised because the string quartet players were on the stage with their music stands, but they were strapped into armchairs and there were no mute instruments and no sound. And the audience was all, it was a totally silent room. The audience were all strapped into their chairs, the muscles of their arms into these chairs. And I realized what was going on was, I'm describing it in the story, is that the, the two violins, the viola and the cello, are playing their parts by reading the music. I don't know how I described it, but... I mean, I don't know what words I use, but but the, the, the bottom line is that by reading the music and hearing it in their heads, the muscles to play the instrument were being articulated, and they were sending that mixed to each person in the 
audience were getting all four muscle things going at the same time. They were getting it. And that was then, so the brain hears it, excites the muscles to play it, and the audience is getting the muscles, exciting the brain to hear it. I mean, I don't know where I got that idea, but you would have thought that there would be bands, that's why everybody did bands around the head. But because I played music, I knew that it came through the fingertips, that there was some connection between the, the brain and the fingers and the mouth and whatever you did. So I didn't even remember having written it, but, but there it was. So there was some connection somewhere. But in 1959, it was a very powerful year, a uh, group of years, 58, 59, 60. Electronic music had started in radio stations, Cologne, and um, then, it, then one at Columbia, and I knew about those. That really didn't interest me that much at the time. I was interested musically, but I, I wasn't anxious to go. I, I did some splicing of tape and things. Yeah, it? electronic music during that yeah, period right. meant working with tapes. And I know that I've read or, or heard you say in an interview that, that you thought that was a little bit clunky. Or yeah, something. that was not what I wanted to do. I was interested. It was interesting. But, um, but right in that period, the um, <clears throat> transistor was used for the first time in a, in a commercial object, probably a radio. I don't know what it was, but but it was big news at the time that like because everything was was vacuum tube so very expensive this was going to be very cheap extremely cheap and there was some you know information about how cheap I mean it was a piece of dirt basically and and bank of america came out with a first credit card that was big news there were cards like american express diners club but you had to pay it every month but this was a credit card where you could pay it off, so you didn't need any cash to buy something. And you have now a technology that's going to be so cheap that this meant, in my mind, and, and not just my mind, but, but others as well, that there was going to be a revolution in audio and, and music which could not be heard. You couldn't hear the Berlin Philharmonic if you lived in Omaha, Nebraska. I mean, a recording over the... Um, we didn't have hi-fi, we didn't have any of that stuff. So you, you would not really hear them play, except maybe on the radio on Saturday morning they might have a... If your town had it, there would be a radio broadcast and they might they might have the Berlin Philharmonic. But it was limited, you know, how much people could do. People couldn't learn to play instruments like I did because... I mean, even though my parents didn't have much money, they did have enough to send me to, to send me to a place where I could learn to play. And I didn't have to work after school, and I could, you know, 85, 90% of the population of the earth could not do that, and they couldn't read music. You can't become a serious composer of orchestral music. You can't become a concerto player if you start playing at 18 or 19 years old. It just can't happen. Or... Later on, you know, in 2021, 20, not possible. But it occurred to me at that point that technology would now open the door both to listening to music, which, will, which would be the way in which people would be more encountered with every kind of music that existed, would get the experience. And if they, at 18 or 19, suddenly 
feel the urge and have the desire to be creative with music, they wouldn't have to go back and learn counterpoint and everything. They would have technology that would eventually, I thought in a hundred years, would bring them to the point that they could do something with it, that they didn't have to master it like the clarinet or something like that. They would have a different approach to it and it would be a, a new music, an entirely, it wouldn't be based on the music I grew up with. It would be based on some combination of whatever it was they, they thought. And this is huge when you consider that fine art music was at least from the Greeks. And that's a long time ago. Uh, I mean, we know that. We don't know what happened before. It was the tool in the hands of only a tiny percent of the population, even back then. So suddenly, we're, I mean, this was huge. This was, to me, the printing press for music. I mean, it was what it did to language, this was going to do it to it. This was 1959. And as time when I, I, I got a hold of early McLuhan's manuscripts before the books came out, and thinking about it and hearing about it and then experimenting, and I realized that technology just meant everything to me suddenly like that. But I didn't know anything about it. So then, then we, I had to... To give up the clarinet was a big deal because by then I was playing part-time with the San Francisco Symphony. I mean, I, I could just call my shots. If, if they called me to play, first clarinet was sick, I would come in and, and play. I would say, well, I can't make two of the rehearsals. That's okay. I mean, I, so, I, mean, I really could call my shots at, at my mid-20s. By then I had, I had one child. A very sick wife, so I, I needed money, and I, there was just no way I could see, you know. But I, I was, I was determined that if I had the aptitude, that I would somehow find a way to make a living. I'd give up the clarinet, give up everything else, and dedicate myself to it. But I had to know I had the aptitude, so I made a piece in 1961. I know because it's when my daughter was born that year. I was trying to create a piece for a hundred years from now, of what the stage with music would be like. And I was working, I was writing music for the theater, and so um, the set designer was a great artist, built four uh, lighting flats. It was an early way to, by different, there were shapes and things, so you could actually transform in real time. You could transform as if it were almost like it was more beautiful in a way because it was it was actually drawn and um, and and handmade. But he had these lighting flats with with colors, colored lights, and um, I got four musicians, and I got four loudspeakers and two two-track tape recorders, and I made a piece, and and the audience was in the middle, and the and everything was around them, and I this is 1961, and if you recall your history, the, the Beatles were 1964. The Trips Festival, which started the, the whole love culture and everything, was 1965. It was actually January 1965, I think. There was nothing called, you know, hippie or anything like that. The, the psychedelic movement the had, psych not, had, started not, had not started at this point. It actually had, but no one knew it did. <laughs> but in any case, I did this piece in 1961, and the audience went nuts and the 
review in the Chronicle said, or one of the papers said, a new art form has been born, and and I, we repeated it the next week, and then repeated it the next week, and then I, I didn't like the piece, actually. But it was clear that I had an aptitude, <laughs> that I was dealing with something that was, I mean, I'd never known it. Every, I always got good reviews about my clarinet playing, but never anything like that. So, so that's when I made the decision at that point. And this basically sounds like it gave you the confidence to stop playing the clarinet and pick up an instrument that, I mean, didn't even exist yet. No, it didn't yet exist. In fact, my lectures this semester are going to be about that very subject at NYU. There were no, there was the RCA synthesizer, the big one. I knew about that. I'd actually been, I was in a group while I was in college that was brought to Princeton to to learn all the new things. And um, so Milton took us to there and gave us a demonstration. But it's that always seems silly to me because as a clarinetist, it's a, lo- it's a big subject. That's what I'm going to deal with. In any case, music as we knew it was interdependent with musical instruments. So to play that music on not a musical instrument doesn't really make any sense. The best you could do to make a... Beethoven string quartet sound great is to do it as well as a great string quartet. If they can get a machine to do that, they'd be doing great. But you can't do it better. There's no such thing as doing it better. If you write music that musicians can't play, maybe you... you but when that happens, it's like a cartoon to me. If, so, if a bassoon plays faster than a bassoon can play or plays higher and lower and does all these crazy things, it's like a cartoon where a man stretches his hand. You know, it, To me, and in fact, when I listen to some of that now, and I play it for, for young people who don't, don't know what it is, it sounds funny. It, because it's traditional music in a way. Uh, I mean, I mean, you've never heard that before. But it's played with instruments that aren't as good as a real instrument and do things a real instrument can't do. So it's, it's sort of like Goofy, you know, having his head spun around or something like that. It's fun, but it's that's what I thought about all that stuff. Yeah, it sounds like the, the synthesizers that came before the Buchla weren't really musical instruments. Well, there wasn't an analog synthesizer yet. The Moog came one year after the Buchla. So what we're talking about here is that there wasn't anything. There was only digital. I'm sure people had analog stuff that they were making, but there wasn't a full system of any sort. That's what Moog... Moog had been making things, but it wasn't until after we finished the, the 100, Moog had told me this, that he realized that there was more to it than just modules, that you could actually make a whole system that was dedicated, an electronic analog system was dedicated to making music. <clears throat> that's when that's how he actually turned around and started um, going in the other direction. And my thought was, I was going to make a neutral... I put an ad in the paper, and that's, that's a well-known story now. And yeah, I love this story that um, you well, basically you needed an engineer, you needed someone to help you make this instrument. You know, you didn't really have a good idea of what it was yet, and um, you had some succession of people come by your place to interview, and. Don Buchla was like the first guy who wasn't either obviously on drugs or you could just have a conversation a with him. Real <laughs> conversation that, and it turns out he wasn't answering the ad. I didn't know this until a couple of years ago because Don isn't that articulate. He doesn't want to talk too much. So, But he said that 
he came because he was going to borrow a tape recorder at the studio or work at the studio with a tape recorder or something. But I never let him get that far because he introduced himself and what he did. And I just assumed, and to this day I don't know that he didn't ad- answer the ad, but, to, but in any case, I just assumed that he was there for that and gave him this thing and he said, yeah, I, I can do that. And he did. The, Ramon Sunder and I had come up with a a scheme, uh, not that we thought it should be made that way, but it it dealt with all the, the dimensions of music. And he said, but this is not the way to go. And then he started talking about transistors, which I knew about, but I didn't know what they were. And so that's when we got started on it. That was probably 1963. Mm-hmm. When did you have the finished product? The finished product didn't actually exist. I had been working regularly with him over a period of almost two years. And we were ready at a certain point, but we needed $500, which for parts. He didn't, it wasn't for him, it was for parts. And we didn't have it. And I, we finally got it, and that's another story, but we finally got it around 1964, 65. And then Don built it, and it came to the studio, it was for the tape center, and it, it came uh, December 1965, I think it was, just before the Trips Festival. I'm not positive of the time, but I admit it was, it was like a month or two before the Trips Festival, because it was used in the Trips Festival at that point. And I was getting ready to move to New York. So the first one was at, at um, the tape center, and then when I moved to New York, I. I had them buy me at NYU. I was artist in residence at Tisch at that point. They brought me, and um, I had them buy a whole complement for my studio. And I, it was basically what the first one was, but also some new things that that we didn't think of at the time that we're beginning to, I'm beginning to understand it. And I, and so that came to my studio. That was the second or third. I think Usachevsky bought one of the first ones for Columbia, Princeton, and uh, but that was it. And so the notion, my first idea was that it was going to be called an electronic music easel because I thought, I thought of the equipment, the modules as, um, as the pigment and the, and the space between the speakers as the, as the, you know, the, the easel itself that you would paint on. In, in some way. So it was not a musical instrument. It was something else. It was a, you know, it was a new, also it meant you could be a studio artist. You could make your music, hear it, do everything you wanted in your studio. That was a whole new concept. Now it's so ordinary that, you know, that no one would think twice about it. And um, it was in the process of working on Silver Apples of the Moon when I was in New York about a year or so, because it came out in 67, so I had to be commissioned in 66, which was almost the time I moved into New York, a little bit before that. And um, as working on it, I, I began to realize that the patch itself, the, the interconnecting of these modules, is not just a sound, but it's a whole, it's a whole network of things that are moving sound in space, it's changing the timbre, it's doing everything that, that you would do and that you could actually perform on it, but not like, not like a musical instrument we have. It, you would be turning knobs, and, and I didn't want a black and white keyboard because that, the black and white keyboard comes from the lyre of the Greeks, you know. It would be, it would be basically um, the whole idea of building 
an instrument that could make sounds that were never possible before and presented a whole new way of working, sticking a keyboard on it would basically it, it, just tie it, it to it, an older tradition. It, it, yeah, not only that, but it's, it's begging what it's offering to you. It's, a, it's like asking you, when did you stop beating your wife? It's going to say, do anything you want, as long as it's tempered, <laughs> it's got chromatic scales. <laughs> and um, so, you know, it, 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 that keyboard comes about in relation to music that had grown for all these years. Now, the thing is that it, it was when Moog did it, it became, that's what everyone know, knew. And it, it makes sense because most people think of music, and this harks back to your first question, most people think of music as music. I mean, that's it. And there isn't, a, but it, I mean, when you listen to other people's music and different, that's already different. You go to Australia and, and the didgeridoo, you know, is, is not quite doing the Beethoven quartets. And, and, but beyond that, if you have the ability to think beyond the physical object, what kind of music would you make? And this is not, uh, do you know Francis Bacon's um, the, New, the New Atlantis? This is in the 14th, 15th century. And he writes about this advanced culture that he discovers, you know, Atlantis. And they have a music building or a space where you hear sounds like you never heard before. And, you know, so this is not a new idea that, you, that musical instruments aren't the only kind of music that could be made. But most people don't think that way. They, you know, they, whatever it is, they're listening to country western, that's music. If you're listening to Beethoven and you're talking about music, I'm talking about a late quartet and he's talking about the last things and we're both comparing them without listening to it. Then when you listen, you say, well, wait a minute, that's not music. And he says, that's not music. But so to me, putting the keyboard on was A, assuming that you were going to write music, new old music, and B, you would have to have chops on the keyboard, which takes you back to the point that didn't want to go. I mean, this was supposed to be something where you didn't need chops. So if you were a keyboard player, that wouldn't be too bad, as it was with Switched On Bach. He was a keyboard player. But for most people, they don't play keyboard all that well, so they'll go to just playing a chord or doing something, you know, that's fun to do and everything and sounds like something and can be even pretty. But it certainly wasn't what I was after. Well, and you, uh, to play the bukla, you do need chops. I mean, it's just a different sort of, of chops that you need. Well, I, mean, I mean, I've played one. They're, they're not extremely straightforward. Well, the chops you get, though, if you're going to make a regular piece of music, it's not the best thing to do it with. But if you, you come up with a, for one thing, one of the reasons we've got, we've got what we've got, and most cultures have it, is that any object vibrates only one way. Church bells vibrate in several ways because they're, they're alloys. So you have the overtones of the vibration mixing a little bit. That's why they have a slightly strange sound to it, to it, depending on how many alloys are in it. But basically, you get a reed, you get a, even the didgeridoos, it's the overtones of that particular thing you're doing. You can't get away from it. That's just the way it works. It has to start, it has to end, it has a way. If you're blowing it, it'll do certain things. But well, what if we lived in a, in a world like Francis Bacon was describing, where you weren't, you didn't have that as a problem. So you, you could have any overtone structure you wanted. It's not dependent on a, on a vibrating object, so you can do things that can't exist in nature. And that's 
what I was looking for. I was looking for ways in which to manipulate time and space and timbre and envelopes that w would be responsive outside of the musical instrument. So the chops you're talking about is really in the brain to start with. It's how to conceptualize something you can play and then how do you play it? And I was thinking at the time, I wasn't thinking of live performance, I was thinking of the proper place for this studio art was a recording. So that's why Silver Apples of the Moon, I was thinking that that was the new chamber music. I, I did play in public, but it wasn't anything like what I was doing with, um, I mean, it was much more, a lot of repetition, a lot of things, because you couldn't get five buklas, you know, you couldn't play them even if you got them. So that's where it goes, and it goes into, it is an instrument, you have to develop chops to be able to even make the thing that you're going to record, but it's a chop, chops based on a particular thing that you, a, an instrument-like object now that you've patched together and it becomes this, this virtual instrument of some sort, but not an instrument like anyone has ever played before. Yeah, it seems like composing for the bukla and playing the bukla end up probably being sort of the same process. Yeah, it is. It's when you don't compose for it. You compose in it or with it uh, because it's a whole different process. It's like sculpting. I mean, you're not, you're not performing that act. You're molding a little bit and you stand back and, or painting and you stand back and you look at it and you change this and then it goes off. And that's why I, the record seemed like a good metaphor for it. But you can take it into public, and that, that was the place that I went, finally. But I gave it up a long time ago because it was so limited. What I, what I had imagined what, is what became the DJ. You have certain things you can do live, because you can only get one or two patches, or three patches uh, on a system you can afford to, to haul around with you. So you, can, you have a very limited amount of things you can actually play live. So the rest of it would have been pre-programmed. And when I was doing it, I was taking tape recorders with me and loops and things like that, and then finding ways to, to access those loops and modify them and, and move everything together. It was sort of a remix at, at, any, at any given point. It's only now that I'm really performing a lot because of, of the computer now and Ableton and things that allow you, to, and, I, and with the Buchla. So I have, a, the stuff is mostly made on the Buchla, but sometimes the recorded materials, you know, with a microphone or, or something. And I'm, I'm remixing plus live, you know, live digital, meaning my finger or a knob, but, but uh, it is a kind of giant remix um, DJ type performance. With Silver Apples of the Moon, this was a really a brand new sort of record. It was a brand new type of piece of music, really. People really hadn't heard music like this before. And in terms of being a classical recording, it was a huge success. W was that a surprise to you? Yeah, I'll say. <laughs> it was a surprise that I got the commission. And then it was a surprise. I thought they were making a terrible mistake, but, but I, I, I was happy. And, um, well, it was quite a, an in, I mean, none such was a discount they were the yeah, label that commissioned right. it, and they were mostly known for putting out like discount recordings, right. right? Yeah, things recorded in Eastern Europe or something like that. And the, the Jack Holzman was the president, the head of, of it, and he was great. I mean, he had a real vision. And his vision was very similar to your vision. It, it was identical, out. yeah. 
Had he heard of you before? I mean, how did this even I, come I, up? We never had a discussion about it. I, he may have, because people were coming to my studio. I must have been a kind of an anomaly even in New York at the time, because people would just pop in. They said, well, you know, we're looking for this kind of stuff. They, everyone says that this is the place to come to meet you and see what you're doing here. Yeah, I like this story, too, that you would work in your studio until very, very late at night. And no, what, early in the morning. Well, early in the morning, <laughs> right. And when musicians um, would finish their shows for the evening, they would come by your place yeah. and check out what you were doing on this crazy instrument. Yeah, it was the... the uh, someone coined the term the mad scientist of the ecstatic moment. Because <laughs> whenever they'd come in, I'd be building one thing that it, I'd be working on it for weeks and weeks at a time. And uh, and it seemed like, you know, just a... I don't know what it sounded like to them. It must have been pretty spectacular. <laughs> so I guess just going back, you got the commission from none such, just happened to be kind of like exactly on the same page. And you record this piece of music. It's it's a huge success for both you and for, for the label. And yeah, big surprise. Yeah, it was a big surprise for me. I don't know if it was for Jack. It wasn't a financial... I mean, it was a success, but it wasn't a big financial success because it was, I think it was ten or 20,000 records. And by commercial standards, that's not huge. But classical music, fine art music only sold, I mean, maybe... 40 or 50 or 400. If you sold 400, you were doing really well. So 10 to 20,000 was a lot. So it was a, it was very surprising to me. And of course, they asked for another one, which I did with the Wild Bull. And not only that, but they ended up on the charts, you know, the classical music charts. So both of them did. But the real shock, it wasn't a shock, I suppose, but the, the real success was the next year when Switched on Bach came out. And that was that probably sold close to a hundred thousand, and it was it sat on the charts, top of the charts, or somewhere up there for a long time. I mean, I I can't tell you how I felt at that time. It was like when when it came out, I didn't even hear it, and you know it was really well done. There's no question about it. But I didn't, hadn't even heard it. I was on tour in Kansas doing um, like three lectures a day at different places, and. And someone was, and people were running to my. I was in a different college three times a day, and um, I come in the, the little room that I was going to talk in would be full, and people would, you know, and, and uh, this young woman is running by me, and I grabbed her arm and I said, "Where are you going?" "Oh, I'm going to that lecture of electronic music." I said, "Oh, that's great." I said, "Do you know electronic?" I mean, there was nothing out there. She said, "Oh yeah, yeah," and so I said, "What do you know?" I thought she was going to say "Silver Apples of the Moon." She said, "Switched on Bach." I didn't even know about it because it had just come out. So she ran to the room, and and I suddenly got a picture of what we were. I knew what that would mean. It was like my whole insides became empty. It was like a hollow feeling of, of I was so excited about the notion of people discovering new things and you know being part of that. And then what we had was exactly what I didn't want to happen. I mean, I can't keep it from happening, but but that we would have, this wasn't even new old music, this was old music played on a new instrument. It wasn't even, a, you know, someone making a new piece on it and, and, and people flocked to it. And that was, um, you know, that was the big thing. So from that point, 
I mean, I, I was still well-known. Silver Apples was still up there for a good 10 years. You know, I was supposed to go on the Johnny Carson show at one point, and I didn't go, and things like that. It, it was it was big news, but it wasn't the kind of success that the other was. And um, some of the commercial people, the, the rock bands and things, I think a few of them used Buchla stuff, but most of them went to the to the Moog at that point because it, it made sense for, you know, what they were doing. It was... Yeah, I mean, for you, the important part about electronic music wasn't just that the music is made electronically, it's that the new tools can bring about a, a completely new sound, a completely new way of conceptualizing music. Right. I mean, is something like Switched on Bach or any number of you know contemporary electronic music pieces now, I mean, is that really electronic music, you know? No, it's not. It's it's music made on with electronic instruments. So, you know, that's that's what it there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's 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 fun. It's fine. I I don't have a problem with it. It's just to me it was it was actually more if you think about language for instance, if you don't have a concept for a certain thing, you don't have a word for it, you don't have that feeling that thing that happens that we're we're so different now because of language and and because of mixing with different peoples and cultures and things that our ability to experience life is much richer in in at least in certain ways maybe in primordial days um you could smell more so it was or taste more i don't know but certainly from from any standpoint i know the potential of growth even taking care of each other of of all anything you want to look at that it we're we have the potential for being more human than we ever were and certainly could experience deep feeling and beauty and you know the kinds of things that one one could do. That this would this would that we would be looking for new avenues where people would come up with new expressions. And and I and I thought of the music. I broke down music as not playing notes, but gestures, sound gestures with envelopes. Oh, oh, oh. So and I actually used an envelope. I had an envelope follower made, and I actually used that to be the control voltage. The input would be finger pressure, and 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 it was there that I thought we had the that plus. Not because they were new sounds so much, but they were new sounds. But they were new ways that a sound can be made that were not part of nature. So that plus using the very body language and the very gesture and then then because you could then put them together in ways that could be as elegant perhaps as the art of the fugue or something like that 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 we would we would experience new things in that one person and then another person and in you know not everybody but but at least people who were capable of it or interested in it would have that possibility that's why i wanted to stay away from the keyboards mm. well Electronic music, or these, these new instruments, these new ways of making music, I mean, there was lots of music that was really suggested by these devices. I mean, thinking about techno, for example, this relied on a synthesizer to make music that kind of couldn't have been made before. Was there music, popular music, that was sort of made after, that was made after um, 
the 1960s when, when you were first working with synthesizers that did feel like new music to you? No. And was that sort of disappointing? No, because I was thinking 100 years. So it wasn't disappointing. I'm surprised, actually. I was very moved. Were you at the Berlin concert? No, I wasn't able yeah, to make it. No, it was great. And I was very moved by the audience response. And, well, it's almost been 100 years, but it has been, not, you know, it's, it, that I'm still alive and I could experience that. It was very moving. I was very, very touched by the distance that's come. And it's still got a long ways to go. I have no idea when it gets there, whether I would notice it or not, I don't know, because I don't know what it is. But it is it, the first question, you can't ask the question, when did you stop beating your wife? Once you stop asking those kinds of questions and are looking for something that is, that is intrinsically new, not just a new way to play a keyboard or you know a new chord or something like that. And that seems to be happening. There's a, there's a new avant-garde, so to speak, that I'm seeing growing that came out of the pop world, most of it. I don't see it coming out of my world, the fine art world. I'm, I'm sort of sitting on the side in the, in the fine art world. But there is a part of the young person's, and there has been for some time, they, they merge with the more pop thing with guitars and things like that. That, that I think uh, even Steve Reich and Phil Glass have sort of, I don't think they started that way, but it became part of that. It's sort of, McLuhan says, first you invent the machine and then the machine invents you. So they invented something, then people took it up and that changed them too. You know, not, they, they held to their ground, but still it became, that, that certainly is what happened to me. And um, I mean, I'm, my music doesn't sound like the rest of the festival I'm on, but you're beginning to hear more, less distance between it. There's less techno and more thoughtfulness about, once you start saying, what is it I really want to say, and you don't use words, but you use sound to make that happen, or some words and some sound, that wasn't going on right at the beginning. It was mostly from dance music and, and things like that. I always wondered, and you, you have a, these lyrics that are talking about the end of the world and you're all dancing to it. It seemed like a god relationship. <laughs> Synthesizers, like right now, seem to be as popular as they've ever been. You mean the analog? Yeah, analog synthesizers. Some people call it a, a trend or a fad, but whatever it is, there's definitely something happening with it. And modular synthesizers, especially this Eurorack yeah. standard, has become extremely popular. Yeah. Um, what do you think of all of this stuff? Are you I involved think, in it at all? Well, I'm, you know, I'm using the Bugla 200E. I'm not involved in the whole movement in it, but it's theirs, it's not mine. I've, did it. I've, I've done it. But I think the, the move toward the Euro rack and the, that kind of thing is in, that's why I was so moved, because that's the direction I would hope for, where you've got modules, and because of that, you can say to someone, I'd like a module that does this. Like, when you, once you do that, then you're asking questions. Well, it depends on what you're asking for, I suppose. But the potential there is that you're, you're beginning, you've taken yourself to a new place psychologically, intellectually, and aesthetically. And that new place is now taking you to another new place. And that's taking, you're going back to the manufacturer. You can't go back to the manufacturer of the Mini Moog and say, you know, we'd like to sing into it. Well, it doesn't make any sense. 
You wouldn't even think that if you were playing on a mini Moog. You'd say, I want a different scale. And they, you know, at the beginning, they couldn't even do that because they had divided voltages into uh, 12 equal parts. So it, it was a chromatic scale they couldn't do otherwise. And I think they probably did something to change that. I'm not sure. With MIDI, you could finally do that. But, you know, Lejeune, um, You Are Not a Gadget. It's a book. Anyway, you might look it up on the web. He's, it's, he was the, his name just jumped out of my head, but he was sort of the guru of um, virtual reality. And he wrote about how early MIDI really constricted, by accident, constricted what people can do and what people think. Mm -hmm. Because you can't, you couldn't easily make new scales and you couldn't bow like a violin or sing. You could, it was a keyboard basically. And uh, so it's an interesting um, book. So I, I'm very encouraged, not because, I mean, I suppose partly because that's what I thought I would like to see happen and it's happening. And I don't think I actually influenced anything by doing what I did. I think it's a natural thing that people would come to. What I have influenced is sort of a, oh my God, this guy was doing it in 1960. And you know what? I did Silver Apples and Moon on the book. If you try to do that, I wouldn't be able to do it now. That's a hell of a job. 13 months working six days a week, 12 hours a day to make that thing happen. And it doesn't sound... It sounds like it just flew out of the, you know, and it... And it, it yeah, it's not, it sounds almost effortless in a way. Yeah. It, you know, you, you work with a Buchla 100, you say, well, how the hell did he do that? I say that to myself sometimes, you know, how did, how did I, I know what I did? You know, I just worked really hard. So I think that fluidity that I brought it is exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to take my very rich background in fine art music and give it as a tool, give it as a blessing to the next generation that was going to come to music much too late to be able to do that, that they can do it. They can go as far as they want with these modules. They don't require 14 years of, of five hours a day minimum. It becomes part of your... It, in fact, it doesn't even want that. It wants you to keep thinking and to keep experimenting and to go... It's a whole different attitude about an instrument. Mm. So the ones that get rid of patch chords and have keyboards and things like that, they're not much interest of interest to me. But I, I didn't, and you didn't see much of the other. Now you're seeing a lot of the the Euro rack, and it's it's a lot. People are making their own. You know, they're they're. Um, uh, that's the exciting part. That's the that's the jumping board. I don't think that's just a fad. I think that. It would be a fad if they were going back and picking up old synthesizers. And I think the, the secret, that's what I meant by that, the, the jumping board or the, the, the moment, the ground zero is the making of modules, mm. which is what we did. Yeah. But now they're making them again with new minds. And, and a lot of them are modeled after uh, the book. I don't know if you know the Serge. Mm, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, the Serge was my assistant during that period. And I brought him to CalArts when we started CalArts. And that's where the, that's where the Serge got started. So th that's why it's it's very close to the that c concept. And um, those things didn't take off. You see them starting to, the concept is starting. And that's because what I wanted to do, I really did do. I set a marker. I said, this is what you can do. And I made it known. And, it, and I was lucky because it was successful. So it's out there. But I don't think people got started because of that. I, I think they would have gone to that. Maybe their modules 
it was logical. And if you're going to start a modular synthesizer, what we did, you would probably do over again, just exactly as we did it. Or, you know, maybe not exactly, but it's not like it was a brilliant thing. No one would thought of doing an envelope follower or, you know, an envelope generator. That's not true either. And anyone would think that once you got started, something like it would happen. Obviously, technology has moved forward quite a lot since you got started with your first Let's synthesizer. Let's not say forward. It's, <laughs> it's, it's changed. It has changed. Well, that's a better way of putting it. Technology has changed quite a lot. I think that sort of the instrument of the future today, if you were thinking about what that would be, would look very different than it would so many decades back. What do you think that is now? What would the sort of... Well, I think, I think two things. First of all, if you're going to preserve old music, Beethoven, you know, Palestrina, whatever it is, you're going to conserve it. And we're, we have a better chance of conserving it now because we can get our hands on it and we can make it happen. You don't need new instruments to do that. So one aspect of it is what's the delivery system. The delivery system of it is changing. We, we got to high fidelity and then we put little, little earphones and we'll probably get to a point and that's not too far in the future where we'll probably be back to my high school walk into a room it'll be silent and we could go direct through the muscles and through the through the we're learning a lot about all that stuff so i think that the transmission of existing music may may actually change that if i i should pass that down to my grandchildren because that article that I wrote, that thing may actually be a 50 years from now, 100 years from now, exactly what you're going to get, or something you know very similar to it. So that is going to change down the line, but it has nothing to do with content. It only has to do with the transmission. The content of the music will change. There'll be new content that will develop, and I think we'll, we'll see people making things that Truly, you couldn't... I mean, I think Silver Apples probably does seem that way to most people, but it really isn't that outlandish, you know, from from that standpoint. It uses a lot of the information. My guess is that we're going to move to a place where new kinds of content will eventually evolve as the machine and the person interface. And, and with that changing along with the transmission, we're lucky that... Um, that people use the technology for other things than fine art music, because or music at all, but certainly anything that, that is new and different, because we'd never have technology if that's what we were doing, because it works for the home, it makes your refrigerator go, you know, it, it, and that's not gonna stop, that's gonna keep going. It's gonna get more complicated, more sophisticated, and more user-friendly as you go. So user-friendly, you won't even know you're doing it anymore. You know, it'll just be, I mean, you, you'll know you're doing it, but, but the technology will be totally elusive. You won't, like in your car right now, you don't know you've got computers going. I mean, you should know, but, but most people <laughs> don't. So I think, I don't think I, I would dare to think about the future. I mean, who would have thought that in the, this year, this, so 21st century, that's got to, if you were born in the 21st century, I suppose it doesn't mean too much to you, but anyone born before the 21st century, you know, it, it was a big deal when we got to the 20th century, now the 21st century. Who would have thought that at this point we would be having religious wars? I mean, 
Sweden and most of the Scandinavian countries couldn't find anything to do with churches. You know, we, we thought that was over. So who knows? I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to predict, but what I'd like to see, and I think has a good potential, is this, this modular kind of development. And the technology itself will change with the rest of the technology. It'll become smaller, it'll become more uh, neurologically controlled, and, and that, I don't think it's that far off. I think, you know, with the glasses, the, the Google glasses and various other things that are now happening, I would imagine we're looking at max 30 years, 35 years before we see another paradigm, major paradigm shift in computing. I don't even know, we're talking about quantum computers, but you know, it may be that when we get there, we won't even be thinking about that. It will go, it'll just, we won't need them. Like, um, if you have the brain, you don't need the quantum, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, an interesting study that was done recently where they got monkeys working on a problem, chimpanzees working on a problem, and they got them wired because they found certain parts of the brain that were being reinforced when each of them worked on a single problem. And so they, they got those things to transmit to another monkey so that they were all interactive in the brain, and they were able to solve these problems a hundred times faster than some problems that they couldn't solve individually at all could now solve as a group. And that's that's the direction we're heading, I think. I don't not to, to be chimpanzees, but it's a whole thing that we we never really even thought about before. Thank <laughs> you.